We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and every episode here at the Cavern in the Woods, located somewhere in Wild West Cork, we investigate a story of the strange. Sometimes UFOs, monsters, ghosts, sometimes strange or fringe political or religious beliefs, and we try and take a look at them in a way that is critical, but not cynical. You join us late in autumn, kind of getting towards starting to think about winter. The first Christmas lights have started to appear in the little hamlets that uh, border the edge of the forest where the cabin is. And those people, of course, uh, have been put on the naughty list because it is far too early for any of that, even if you're not listening to this for a little while, wherever you are. If it's not, if it's not at least December, I mean, come on, folks. Anyway, this episode is Those Babies Were Huge, UFOs on the Moon. It's been ages since I've tackled any flying saucer or UFO subject. This is one that's always been at the back of my head. And um, I had to pull this one out because my main episode, my idea for this week's one, hasn't come to fruition. But it it will happen in a few more weeks. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that very shortly. I have a few community-related things I'm excited to talk about. Firstly, we have two new patrons over at Patreon. So we have uh, Mr. C. Scott. Uh, I'm not sure where you're listening from, Mr. C or Miss C, perhaps. So by all means, get in touch. I do like to know where listeners are coming from. We also have um, Mr. Tom B, who got in touch and has signed up for the Patreon and is listening from Florida which is cool. I have been to Florida several times, sadly, but only passing through going somewhere else, which not not because I don't want to see it. The Everglades is absolutely on my list whenever it is safe and sensible to go traveling once again. But big shout out to those two folks for supporting us. If you want to help out and you're a fan of the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash white Atlantic weird and you will get bonus episodes so once a week we do wide atlantic weird extra uh, our last bonus episode by the way is myself and the wonderful mr chris spooky joyce talking about jurassic park trespasser so that fits in with our last main episode about uh, the jurassic park novel and it's just a little bit of extra lore there's a lot of great stuff about uh, john hammond and his memoirs that are associated with that particular pc game and chris is always a great guest to have on he's really knowledgeable and really funny and just brings a different tone to everything so the the bonus episodes are often a bit sillier or a bit lighter or we talk about a wider range of things and i've been really enjoying them so far and we have lots of other fun ones coming up i think the next one is likely to be and probably chris again depending on when i can get a hold of him we were we were thinking about doing an episode about protest culture and the difference between protest culture in um in in like the bush years uh, versus the trump years and what's changed with media how we expect you know so like in those days there was a lot of i was listening to a lot of punk rock that was very deliberately kind of anti-bush and you know why were we not seeing quite as much of it in the last in the last four years so that's the sort of thing we're going to be talking about all going well so what else do we have to talk about yes you can always reach out to us and make suggestions and uh, corrections and stuff like that on twitter we are at strange ireland on instagram we are wide atlantic weird podcast 
we I want to give a shout out to Cabal Minion over on Twitter who got in touch listens from Australia if I remember correctly because um he has a suggestion for a, a weird story that he found that he thought we might like this is about an abandoned wildlife park in Melbourne and a friend of his actually went to visit this and it's it kind of became briefly internet famous because there's a great vice article for it with wonderful photographs i'll put a link in the show notes so you can check it out basically it's like an an abandoned park that was just left to rot and somewhere within it is a giant tank of water with a a decaying full-size four meter long great white shark uh, swimming in formaldehyde so it's like semi-decaying semi it's it, it being preserved by this stuff and it was there until it recently and I, what seems to have happened is it became a bit of an internet sensation and people started visiting and vandalizing and eventually i suppose whoever the powers that be are in that region um, had to take it down and i could be wrong but based on the pictures it looks like it's uh, out in the sticks a little bit not in a, in a city so kind of like a cool abandoned location to go visit uh, but it, it's not there anymore so you can't but thanks for that that's a cool story i like that one now i'm going to talk briefly about upcoming episodes so i was going to talk about populism with donald my brother on this episode and we did record that twice and both times there were tech problems and and the last time was really good i was really excited about it and i can't quite bring myself to to put him through that again so i'm gonna i'm gonna put that one on the back burner for at least a couple of weeks while we maybe come up with a new approach so that it doesn't feel tired we have really great stuff to talk about obviously the timing with the election and everything would have been great and that was going to fit in with my bonus episode with chris but we'll see what happens i'm still excited about doing it i just need to come up with the right angle instead i think we're likely to be talking about the 1990s um frankenstein film the 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 one that came out kind of at the same time as uh, Franz Ford Coppola's Dracula. Donald is a huge fan and is his area of expertise is is the kind of time period in which it's set. So he's he's all up on the sort of politics and um, philosophy of that time. So that's that's a potential one. I then, on the other hand, would know more about the Victorian period and have a lot of love for the the Dracula film that came out at that same time. So we might do an episode, perhaps comparing and contrasting ideas of uh, the Gothic and the strange and and the idea of the monstrous. Uh, as we did when we talked about Gulliver's Travels a, a few episodes back. He had some suggestions for me about the Jurassic Park episode. So uh, you may mention, you may remember I mentioned briefly that uh, Ingen in the original Jurassic Park novel, our, our, their home base is Palo Alto in California. I didn't mention this on the episode. Donald reminded me, of course, that is one of the hubs of what came to be known as Silicon Valley and would have been that, you know, referencing that place was a bit of a dig at those kind of startups that Crichton surely disliked. He also mentions that whenever a writer includes a reference to like Cambridge Mass, uh, and it's it's a dig at sort of hoity-toity academic types uh, because of the link, of course, to Harvard. And I forgot to mention it on the episode too, but that's where Dennis Nedry is from in the book. He's from he's from Cambridge, or at least he has done his studies in, in Harvard. So again, Michael Crichton having a dig at the academics there, which kind of fits in with the theme of the episode um, that we were talking about with Jurassic Park. Now, my beer for this episode, I did forget to mention my beer last time, but I did feel the, I nearly, I nearly dropped in a reference when I was editing, but I felt the Jurassic Park episode was probably 
long enough already. I think this one today probably won't be. Um, this episode, our beer is called Journeyman Master Cooper IPL India Pale Lager, and who makes this little bit little bit dodgy when when the when you buy a beer and it doesn't have the name of the brewery, kind of very clear on the bottle and you have to go hunting for it and it's brewed quote under license by station works brewery in nuri well that kind of uh, gives you a clue you're probably not dealing with a real micro brew not that i'm well i'm i suppose i'm a bit of a snob but yeah it's, it's probably a supermarket beer that you know has some is made by some massive company that has either bought out or co-opted some smaller company having said that it's lovely i really really enjoyed this uh not quite a lager, not quite an IPA, but somewhere in between. Uh, burst of citrus and tropical fruit flavours from the New World hops. The subtle piney notes make this a delicious fruity beer with full-on character. Uh, yep, yeah, I loved it. It's 5.2, which is pretty high for either an IPA that I would usually have or a lager in that, in that, to that degree, but I enjoyed it very much. So, you know, sometimes there's nothing wrong with a supermarket beer. Now... Why are we talking about UFOs? Something came into my head this week, which was when I was a kid, I loved science and, and astronomy. I still do, but I also loved UFOs. And I used to go into the library and go to the section where all the UFO books or the, the, the astronomy books. And the library at the time would have had a lot of older books. And if you got one of those astronomy books from that kind of sweet period when paranormal stuff was kind of briefly mainstream, kind of like late 70s, early 80s, there would almost always be like a brief bit at the back of the book where they talked about UFOs, even if it was a relatively sensible, quote unquote, astronomy book. And they would always be a bit like, yeah, there's this other thing that's a bit silly and we don't really take it seriously. But hey, who knows? And a bit of a shoulder shrug kind of an attitude. So I was so hard up for material to read about UFOs. I couldn't I couldn't find much of it, but I always loved it that I, w I would comb through science books just in case they had one of these chapters at the end. And I distinctly remember coming, because I only came across this story once for years and years and years in the back of one of these, you know, science books, totally lost. There's no way I'll ever be able to find out where this came from. And I, I've, I've looked, but there was a, a full page painting of the Apollo 11 astronauts. Okay, so Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon, uh, walking up to a crater and in the middle of the crater there was two or three gigantic flying saucers classic 1950s style flying saucers and there was a story attached to this that there had been a secret transcript so that while the two guys were on the moon in 1969 on that first historic voyage um, they had surreptitiously changed the channels that they were talking to so that the public couldn't hear and that the legend goes that they switched over to the medical channel which was not available to everybody and that they had reported what they were seeing and the quote that stuck in my head supposedly was Armstrong saying they're lined up across the crater looking at us these babies are huge and I, like, that was the only place I'd ever seen this for years was in this one book and took me a long time to track this idea down or, or find out where it had come from. I, it seems to have been one of these UFO legends that has dropped off the map a little bit. I haven't heard much about it, but I finally got some solid information about it from a book called UFOs and Outer Space Mysteries uh, from 1982 by a fellow called James Oberg, who is going to show up in a few places in this episode. Suffice to say, he's he's a hardcore skeptic. He writes extensively, has written extensively about 
space travel and the science of space and knows what he's talking about. But he also has some experience in tracking these ideas as folklore slash mythology, which is something I do appreciate as well. But just so you know, hardcore skeptic, make of that what you will. Now, I had a few I had access to a few bits and pieces of lore that is similar to this when I was much younger, and I've tracked some of them down. So I'm holding my well-thumbed copy of World Famous Strange But True by the also very strange Colin Wilson. Also written by Damon Wilson and Rowan Wilson, who I always presumed were his offspring, but uh, I, I haven't actually checked that one out. He's talking about um, T.C. Lethbridge, who's a kind of a collector of strange stories from the mid-20th century, who really was kind of forgotten apart from the writing of Colin Wilson, to be fair, and probably was a very interesting guy. But he says, In 1966, two moon satellites, Americans, America's Orbiter 2 and the Soviet's Lunar 9, both photographed groups of solid structures in two different places on the lunar surface. Ivan Sanderson writes, uh, and that's never, that's never a good sign, Ivan T. Sanderson, of course, one of the mid-20th century kind of creators of the modern field of cryptozoology and kind of famously not afraid of in, in, in making a story bigger than it needed to be. So Ivan Sanderson writes, The Lunar 9 photographs taken on 9th February 1966 after the craft had landed in the ocean of storms reveal two straight lines of equidistant stones that look like markers along an airport runway. These circular stones are all identical and are positioned at an angle that produces a strong reflection from the sun, which would render them visible to a descending aircraft. The Soviet scientist Dr. S. Ivanov notes that the objects, as seen in 3D, seem to be arranged according to some definite geometric laws. The Orbiter 2 photographs taken some 2,000 miles away from the Soviet site show what appear to be eight pointed obelisks. From the angle of the sun and the length of its shadow, the largest of these objects was estimated to be about 75 feet high and 50 feet wide at the base. This makes it sound more like a tall pyramid than an obelisk. Moreover, the Soviet scientist Alexander Abramov states that the distribution of the Orbiter 2 objects is similar to the plan of the Egyptian pyramids at Giza. A NASA official told Sanderson that the photographs were extremely clear but explained that there had been, quote, no speculation about them so far. He added that they had been filed. On 26th November 1956, an American astronomer, Robert E. Curtis, was photographing the moon's surface through a 16-inch reflector telescope. He was startled to observe a white cross near the ring plan Fra Mauro. Each arm of the cross was several miles long. Scientists have been unable to explain this phenomena. Lastly, John O'Neill, science editor of the New York Herald Tribune, observed a gigantic bridge-like structure in the Sea of Crises. The sun shone under it when it was at a low angle, making it clearly visible. Other astronomers have since confirmed the existence of this giant bridge on the moon. So I loved this stuff when I was a kid. I thought it was fascinating, but always a little weird that, like, he's writing about these pictures, but he's not showing me them. And obviously, before the internet, you couldn't go searching for them. So they all, the pictures were always, like, more impressive in my imagination than most of this kind of stuff is now. And also the idea how, like, they're all these single sightings, whereas, like, the moon is always there, you know? Why, why do we have nothing but these sightings? Oh, once a guy saw a bridge 
and then what happened it was just gone the next day no one was ever able to point a telescope at the same place again why are these sightings fleeting and momentary you know like ghost sightings that's always been strange to me this is something which is much bigger now actually there's a, a thriving community of sort of you know anti-nasa nasa or faking everything type ufologists who uh, you know pour over photographs from nasa and look for what they see as irregularities and there's a whole lot of apophenia going on there and most of the you can go looking for obelisks and cities and abandoned installations on the moon and on mars and really none of the pictures are very interesting to be honest so it's a bit of a it's a bit of a plot line that goes nowhere it's a bit of an angle of the ufo folklore that i think maybe burned itself out in the mainstream and is is now only the real hardcore fringers who believe that you know nasa have secret bases everywhere and aren't telling us and there's a secret black space program and all that so but but it, it, it kind of sets the stage for this idea that the apollo astronauts you know saw something they shouldn't have and they saw the ufos on the moon not only that but there's a bit of there's a bit of a quote from the original dialogue which goes something like they've clearly been here a long time to have put up a structure like this so the idea that the ufos have been there the aliens have been watching us for years and either nasa knows um, and has hidden it from us or they're finding out in the 1960s and have hidden it ever since either way they're clearly up to no good and all of this kind of like turning these august scientific institutions into bad guys and conspiracy literature is kind of funny to me just i've never worked for nasa but i did a little for for the smithsonian years ago and they show up in conspiracy theories as well and it's just so funny having been you know to a small degree on the inside and just like these institutions that people think are monolithic and all-powerful and are capable of holding these incredible secrets for decades you know and swearing hundreds of scientists to secrecy and when you're on the inside and you see they, they they're just as there's just as much clutzery and and you know like bad decisions and just just stuff that seems sinister and it, it's probably just incompetency i'm not saying the smithsonian are incompetent just they're humans you know they're just it's it's an institution made up of people who are flawed and doing their best but make mistakes like all of us and like all other companies whenever people get sort of conspiratorial about governments i kind of tend to say like you know think of any company you've ever worked for and just all the ordinary day-to-day -day very human incompetency that you've probably seen and just imagine the same thing times a thousand right so when we talk about sort of nasa and ufo stories i'm just going to you can't not mention edgar mitchell i'm only going to mention him very quickly because he's not super relevant to the story but any article about nasa and ufos will bring up mitchell because he's probably the one who's spoken the most about it he's an out and out believer he was you know a, an important and legitimate astronaut he was on the moon he was one of very few people ever to have been there i think 1971 is when he was there but after, you know, even at that point in his life, he was very into kind of new age spiritual stuff. And I think most of what he says about UFOs has to be taken in that context. So, I mean, for him, he was always into like consciousness expanding, Eastern mysticism, uh, kind of mystical yoga stuff. He supposedly uh, did like ESB experiments with a friend on Earth while he was in Earth orbit. So... I mean, it's much more of a religious belief thing than like the kind of nuts and bolts ufos that i'm interested in and i don't really feel he has a lot to tell us about 
the reality of, you know, alien craft, the reality of NASA hiding stuff or not hiding stuff. He was just a kind of a spiritual new age guy who happened to work in space and therefore, you know, was also open to UFOs and stuff as well. So when you see articles that show up and say, oh, you know, NASA astronaut, uh, ex uh, you know, whistleblower states that UFOs are real. Yeah, he probably has. He probably did say that. <laughs> he talks about them a lot. But, I mean, he also probably believes that he's, you know, learning to transcend reality, uh, you know, and, and communicate with hidden masters in Tibet or some, some such, because that's the sort of world he was in on. And, and to him, a UFO isn't probably a flying saucer. It's probably a more spiritual kind of Carl Jungian sort of a, you know, a projection of some sort of mass id of the human race. So... It's a slightly different ballgame. Still fits into our remit here on the show of, you know, people who believe weird things, but um, not really that linked to the... I, I'm more interested in the nuts and bolts spacecraft angle for this episode, at least. Now, when I was a kid, I did have the Osborne World of the Unknown UFOs book. Still have it here. It's brilliant. And there's a lovely two-page spread with amazing illustrations uh, called Encounters in Space. <laughs> and the, uh, the the beginning of it says very plainly, perhaps the best place to see a UFO would be in outer space. Yes, I suppose so, There's, if, if you believe the extraterrestrial hypothesis. So they have a, a lovely rundown of what they call the first space UFO sighting, which is the 1965 James McDivitt sighting, which is still very famous and has an element of conspiracy in there as well. So... Um, I think that's one of the reasons why it's kind of stuck around in the literature and in the folklore. So, in Earth orbit, June 1965, uh, on the 20th orbit, apparently. That's a nice bit of information there. So, quoting directly from the Osborne World of the Unknown, the first space UFO was seen by astronaut James McDivitt through the window of his Gemini 4 spacecraft. Early in the four-day mission, when his co-pilot Ed White was asleep, McDivitt glimpsed an object some 15 kilometers from the capsule which he described over his radio as having quote big arms sticking out of it he took pictures of the object before it disappeared but curiously he was never able to find those pictures when the films were processed a short while later a photograph appeared in the press which claimed to be mcdivitt's ufo it showed an egg-shaped blob of light like the one in this picture the, the picture, incidentally, kind of looks more like the uh, like a tadpole. And in fact, the photograph it's based on is, um, is relatively tadpole-shaped. Uh, and though McDivitt denies that this is his missing photograph, the incident was never cleared up. NASA, the American Space Agency, <laughs> thanks Osborne, <laughs> says the UFO was glare reflected off a window bolt seen through the smudged pane. Another investigator suggested it was the Gemini's own Titan II second-stage booster rocket in a nearby orbit. But the fact is, no one really knows what McDivitt saw. Classic. The, the painting is gorgeous, not really because of the UFO, but just because of the, the, the lovely... It looks like an oil painting of the, the Gemini capsule itself, which is that kind of old-fashioned two-man sort of light bulb-shaped capsule that you might have, you might know from the early days of both uh, American and Soviet um, space exploration. Now, you probably noticed there the whole thing with the, oh, he took a photograph and got the, um, got the, the, took the photographs to NASA to be developed and then they disappeared mysteriously and then a photograph was published but he said, oh, that wasn't the one that I took. 
So there's obviously this hint of conspiracy going on in there, and I think that's one of the reasons why this story really took off. Now, for more details on this, I've turned to James Oberg, not from his UFOs and Outer Space Mysteries book, but from his his website, jamesoberg.com, and he writes, The facts are plain. On June 3rd, 1965, Gemini 4 was launched into orbit 150 miles above the Earth's surface. Rookie astronauts McDivitt and White were headed for the USA's first long-duration flight, the first to attempt extensive visual observations and photography. On the second day over Hawaii, the 35-year-old McDivitt reported seeing an object, quote, like a beer can with an arm sticking out. Now this description of this, this version of it uh, as being described like a beer can is pretty important. Uh, I, I suspect the reason Osborne left that out is because it's a kid's book. Uh, which NASA officials later announced had been identified by Air Force space radars as the thousand mile distant Pegasus 2. But that range was too great, it turned out, for McDivitt's object to have been the winged Pegasus satellite. Together with the mysterious, quote, tadpole photo, the McDivitt report has achieved UFO superstardom and been firmly enshrined in UFO literature and lore. Now, I have a quote here from McDivitt himself. This is him... Uh, yeah, uh, this is Fate magazine from June 1974 talking about a transcript of what he said on the Dick Cavett show in 1973. So remember, the sighting itself happens in 1965, so it's quite a while afterwards. So McDivitt said, quote, I was flying with Ed White. He was sleeping at the time, so I didn't have anybody to verify my story. We were drifting in space with the control engines shut down, and all the instrumentation off when suddenly an object appeared in the window. It had a very definite shape, a cylindrical object. It was white. It had a long arm that stuck out on the side. I don't know whether it was a very small object up close or a very large object a long ways away. There was nothing to judge by. I really don't know how big it was. We had two cameras that were just floating in the spacecraft at the time. I, I love that. Just floating. <laughs> Grab a camera. Um... So I grabbed one and took a picture of the object and grabbed the other and took a picture. Then I turned on the rocket control systems because I was afraid we might hit it. At the time we were drifting, without checking, I never, I have no idea which way we were going, but as we drifted up a little further, the sun shone on the window of the spacecraft. The windshield was dirty, just like in an automobile, you can't see through it. So I had the rocket control engines going again and moved the spacecraft so that the window was in darkness again, and the object was gone. I called down later and told them what had happened, and they went back and checked their records of other space debris that was flying around, but we were never able to identify what it could have been. The film was sent back to NASA and reviewed by some NASA film technicians. One of them selected what he thought was what we were talking about, at least before I had a chance to review it. It was not the picture. It was a picture of a sun reflection on the window. Now, worth noting, McDivitt never really went off the deep end. Like, until until the end, he remained a fairly kind of low-key guy who, you know, took, you know, trotted this story out for talk shows and stuff when he was asked, but he never really went to town on it. He never became a big conspiracy head. You can tell by his language here, he's not really implying that something conspiratorial happened. He's He's just saying that, you know, he had to send down a whole bunch of pictures and it looks like they made their best guess at what he was talking about, but because he wasn't there to to you know to be care to be sure, they chose the wrong one. Um, and he he's 
been more or less conspiratorial about this over the years but like I said he never really went uh, off the deep end with this sort of thing. So we've already mentioned the the Titan so the Titan 2 booster was like a part of the launching apparatus for the for the capsule and you know of course before the before the space shuttle which was like the first reusable spacecraft all rockets or capsules came with basically all this rocket paraphernalia that has various separate elements that drop off and float away at different points during the launch. So it's worth keeping in mind that pretty much all American and Soviet sort of spacecraft come with a range of these bits and pieces that fly off them as part of their launching and, and you know, drift off into space and sometimes end up looking a little strange and NASA actually has a term for these when they're unidentified they call them moon pigeons which basically says yeah we accept that you're not always going to know what all these weird floaty shiny things out there in space are and they literally admit that they don't always have the time to identify all of them or or tie them down to a particular bit of kit and this was in the early days when there wasn't much else up there right now there's hundreds and hundreds of satellites from all different countries and I can only imagine how complicated it is to keep tabs on every single one plus every bit of space debris or junk that's up there as well. So the the Titan II was uh, part of the, the rocket paraphernalia that would have been dr you know drifting away from the craft itself and Olberg writes keeping in mind that astronaut White who had spent the same period watching the same booster that's the Titan II had already misidentified it at least once at much closer range. Let us take another look at the visual conditions under which McDivitt saw the object and consider if he might have made a mistake. And he then goes on to talk more about the smeared windows and stuff like that. But I'm going to I'm going to cut to the end where Oberg says, is any conclusion possible after so many years when the supporting evidence has been trashed and the eyewitness testimony has become fossilized by countless repetitions? The principal leg of the Condon endorsement, that there wasn't any candidate objects within 1,000 miles, has been demolished. Now, the Condon committee, of course, was the, the infamous kind of attempt by the Air Force to rubbish UFOs, and it that is literally what happened. They decided, we've had enough of this. I think it was 1968. You know, we don't want to have to deal with this anymore. They were looking to shut down Project Blue Book after decades of what they saw as not being very useful information. So they basically paid a group of scientists at, I think, Colorado University, led by this fellow Professor Condon, to say, look, will you look at the whole, um, will you look at the whole state of the field and give us a analysis? Is it worthwhile or continuing to spend money on investigating this? And they pretty heavily hinted that the answer was supposed to be no, we want to stop doing this. And that's what they got. So the Condon committee, to be fair, has a bad reputation amongst the UFO community because they were fairly clearly out and out trying to just shut down this investigation as Blue Book itself was to have done during its um, Project Grudge years, but that's another story. So Olberg points out here that um, the, the Condon committee said that, look, there actually was this beer can-shaped Titan II rocket stage within close enough range to have been misidentified and then he says, McDivitt, more than a decade after the fact, refused to believe that he could have misidentified that object, but both his degraded eyesight and different viewing angle at the time of the sighting eliminate any reliability from that claim. Okay, maybe I, I'm, 
that sounds like a difficult thing to to get on board with James Oberg, but I like what he says next. He says, Years of UFO research have taught us the surprising lesson that pilots are, in truth, among the poorest observers of UFOs because of their instinctive pattern of perceiving visual stimuli, primarily in terms of threats to their own vehicles. Lastly, this coincidence must be considered. That Gemini 4 was the only one of 10 manned flights in which a rendezvous was attempted, and nearly accomplished, with a beer can shaped target, and that Gemini 4 was the only flight on which a crewman reported seeing an unidentified beer can shaped object. Nice. Uh, I can I can confirm personally, I have known at least one pilot who believed a lot of strange things and was heavily, heavily into UFO lore and told me some really weird stuff. There is this kind of ongoing phenomena in UFO reporting where people take more seriously reports from folks who they sort of perceive as being trustworthy and historically that's been policemen pilots and astronauts their sightings are taken as being perhaps more more important than the sightings of just ordinary civilians the idea being I guess that these are people who are trained to look at things in the sky or or otherwise and there's some, you know, I, I'm okay with that. I, I would certainly take someone's uh, evidence on board, especially if, if they are, are trained to do that sort of thing. But at the same time, I've known pilots personally who were a bit wacky in the stuff they believed. And perhaps I'm being mean-spirited. I just mean people who are not being very critical, you know. And if if I was to take what they said seriously about UFOs, I would also have to take what they said seriously about you know blood drinking lizard people and i'm just not i'm just not ready for that guys i'm just not ready so um we're going to talk about apollo 11 finally we're making our way towards the the apollo 11 1969 and before they even got to the moon supposedly they were being tracked by ufos and this is this is something that had long legs in the UFO community. The idea that Apollo 11 was, was tracked. The truth is, almost all Apollo missions had, you know, quote-unquote unidentified things that they reported. Largely because of the sheer amount of bits and pieces that come off the ships themselves and, uh, you know, can be spotted but not directly identified as a matter of course. Like I said, NASA even have terminology for this. But of course, the, the the key element of conspiracy thinking is that in big important events have to have big important reasons. So, you know, we don't have quite as much lore about, you know, the other Apollo missions, but because Apollo 11 was the important one, that's the first time we went to the moon. You know, it, it feels emotionally satisfying that, of course, that would be the one where, you know, these weird things happened. So I'm going to return to the Osborne book for a quick report on supposed, supposed Apollo 11's UFO report. Place, Earth orbit, date, July 1969, time unknown. Some of the strangest sightings have been made during Apollo missions to the moon. On the very first landing mission, Apollo 11, the crew spotted a large object flying in the same direction as themselves. The object was too far away to be described clearly, but you can see an impression of it in this picture. Now, the, imp the picture looks like somebody has spilled some grey ink into a blob. To be fair. Uh, examined through a small telescope, it sometimes resembled a tumbling hollow cylinder, but an adjustment of focus gave it a clear L shape, like an open suitcase, said Neil Armstrong. 
The crew thought it must be their own cast-off SIVB booster rocket, until told by ground control that the S, or maybe it's S1VB, was 10,000 kilometers away. One researcher has suggested the object was a fragment of insulation material. The Apollo 12 crew reported a flashing object that accompanied them until it flew off at high speed. Now, just to put some of this in context, I have a uh, this is a statement from NASA <laughs> in reply to, quote, UFO inquiries. Letter to Donald Ratch from Dale Myers, Associate Administrator for Manned Space Flight, dated February 5th, 1973. Now, this is from astronautics.com. Quote, During all of our Apollo lunar missions, objects have been sighted by the various crews. Subsequent to the crew sightings, the flight controllers determined the observations were probably either the SIVB booster, the spacecraft lunar adapter panels, or smaller objects such as mylar foil particles. Because of their large size and highly reflective surfaces, the S1VB and SLA panels should be visible at great distances in the space environment. So I now return to James Oberg's book as we slowly get closer to the the spooky, you know, mysterious transcript of the UFOs um, in the crater on the moon. So basically it's clear that from early on, in fact within a month of the, the famous voyage, there were stories going around in the UFO community about the spacecraft being buzzed by UFOs. And Oberg writes, an idea of what secrets might be out there can be obtained from a summary of the circulated Apollo 11 stories published by Mike Harris in a New Zealand UFO newsletter in 1974. Quote, From the launching of Apollo 11 on July 16, 1969, until the spacecraft passed the midpoint between the Earth and the Moon the following day, the three astronauts observed a UFO keeping pace with them. Two days later, on July 19th at approximately 1800 hours, UFOs made another appearance and were recorded on film. The details of this extensive film were the day before the lunar landing, Aldrin transferred to the LM Eagle, that's the, the landing craft, and began the final instrument checks. While checking the close-up cameras, the UFOs, I have to stay here, they, they're using the charmingly dated UFOs with, with full stops after each letter, which makes me smile. The UFOs came into the picture. Whilst under observation, the objects were seen to be emitting what looked like some kind of liquid. The two objects were in close formation and would come together and part after some time separated and went off their own ways. The objects appeared to be intelligently controlled, the astronauts said. The third sighting during this epic flight occurred on July 21st, 26 hours. 26 hours, maybe. After an hour and a half previously, Neil Armstrong... Sorry, about an hour and a half previously, Neil Armstrong and Aldrin had set foot on the moon. While they were busy gathering rocks, Collins in the command module Columbia was busy talking to Houston. Calling Houston, this is Columbia. Go ahead, Columbia. I couldn't find the LM, but I saw some weird, small, white objects. Coordinates are 0 0.3, 7.6 on the southwest edge of the crater. If they're here, then they should have seen them too. So this seems to have been a real thing. So there was a point when... One of the astronauts um, got a little bit dis disorientated and couldn't, or at least he, the 
the lunar lander wasn't where he thought it was supposed to be. So he looked around and it seems to be referring to some kind of rocks or something like that, just to make the point that he wasn't quite where he thought it was. And uh, Oberg provides a little bit of text here to show that, you know, very quickly he re- he regained his, his bearings and that this bit of text was just kind of taken out of context by UFO buffs. And But it's interesting how this r- gives you the idea that there was something odd on the moon and it kind of feeds into the story that we're going to to bring ourselves up to now. And finally, we get to what's known as the Pepper Transcript. And this is the absolute origin of that story that I found in a weird UFO book so many years ago with that uh, full page painting that I've tried to track down and I can't get a hold of. And uh, whatever image you s- I decide to put on the front of this, hopefully it will be for this episode hopefully will be um a some sort of a painting of this of this kind of famous element from ufo lore so oberg writes only shortly after the astronauts returned to earth in mid 1969 a bootleg tape and voice transcript of what was really said on the moon had been circulating clandestinely in ufo circles the headline on the cover of national bulletin magazine distributed in canada but printed in new york city for September 29th, 1969, so very shortly after the astronauts had returned, cried out that phony transmission failure hides Apollo 11 discovery. Moon is a UFO base. Author Sam Pepper gave this version of the top secret tape transcript from a, quote, leak close to the top, as follows. What was it? What the hell was it? That's all I want to know. These babies were huge, sir. They were enormous. No, no, that's just field distortion. Oh, God, you wouldn't believe it. What? What the hell's going on? What's the matter with you guys? They're here, under the surface. What's there? Mission Control, calling Apollo 11. Roger, we're here, all three of us, but we found some visitors. Yeah, they've been here for quite a while, judging by the installations. Mission Control, repeat last message. I'm telling you, there are other spacecraft out there. They're lined up in ranks on the far side of the crater edge. Repeat, repeat. Let's get that orbit scanned and head home. In 625 to the 5th, auto relay set. My hands are shaking so bad. Film, yes, the damn cameras were clicking away from up here. Did you fellows get anything? Had no film left by this time. Three shots of the saucers or whatever they were may have fogged the film. Mission Control, this is Mission Control. Are you underway? Repeat, are you underway? What's this uproar about UFOs? Over. They're set up down there. They're on the moon, watching us. The mirrors, the mirrors. You set them up, didn't you? Yes, the mirrors are all in place, but whatever built those spacecraft will probably come over and pull them all out by the roots tomorrow. This story was spread by multiple authors and writers shortly afterwards, including a science fiction writer by the name of Otto Binder, ensuring that it kind of got a lot more leeway and a lot more publication than perhaps it otherwise might have. But Oberger writes, When the Pepper transcript first became public, UFO buffs wrote to their congressmen demanding that NASA officially confess to the cover-up. NASA replied that the incidents did not take place Conversations between the Apollo 11 crew and Mission Control were released live during the entire Apollo 11 mission. 
there were between 1,000 and 1,500 representatives of the news media and TV present at the Houston News Center listening and observing, and not one has suggested that NASA withheld any news or conversations of this nature. Oberg goes on to kind of examine the vocabulary used in the Pepper transcript to try and debunk it, so he basically points out that a lot of the language they use is not accurate to the the way that NASA astronauts and mission control would actually communicate. So he focuses even on the phrase mission control. He says this was never a phrase used by astronauts. They in, they instead always referred to it as Houston, which, you know, the, the famous Houston, we've had a problem quote uh, comes to mind. And he says, technical sounding gibberish such as field distortion, orbit scanned, 625 to the 5th, were never found in real transcripts. Kind of sounds like, you know, Trekno babble when they just make up stuff to sound scientific. Uh, and if, you know, if you're not uh, an expert in that particular department, maybe you'd be fooled by it. Repeat, repeat is never used on the radio. Instead, astronauts and mission control use the phrase, say again. And finally, he points out that they use the phrase, three of us, when, in fact, of course, Michael Collins never left the, the orbiting module and only Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were on the lunar surface uh, at any time. I've always wondered how Michael Collins felt going all that way and being uh, the only guy who didn't get to go and do it. Now, lastly, I've looked into the notion that, you know, the reason there's no record of this is because the astronauts switched over to the, the, the secret medical channel, as, as the lore goes. And Oberg does have an interview here with, let's see, he so he himself went to interview in 1980 what he calls two highly respected space experts at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Terry White and Charles Charles Redmond. The conversation is reasonably long, but I'm just going to read a little bit because it does focus on this idea of the the censored transmissions and the secret channels. So, uh, Oberg says, "Was there any capability to censor space transmissions?" And this is interesting. So Redmond says, "The public affairs officer, the PAO, in mission control." So presumably the person who's responsible for, you know, what the media have access to, did have an inhibit switch for the air-to-ground voice signals, which were on a seven-second delay to allow synchronization with the computer processed television images. And then White says, but that switch was never used to the best of my recollection, and I was a voice of Apollo PAO for many, many flights. Redmond says, right, I suppose it was there to keep a space tragedy off the air live until we could notify any next of kin. That's kind of spooky, isn't it, to think about? If something had gone wrong, you know, live in front of the whole world, they had this they had this little system in place to delay it by, you know, so they would know seven seconds ahead of time so they could make a split-second decision to maybe kill the feed and, uh, you know, prevent a personal tragedy from becoming a, a, a national, even an international one. Very interesting about all of these kind of fail-safes. Uh, but it would not in any case have affected transcripts, only the real-time release, which was piped to the newsroom and out to the next word networks. I presume, you know, a UFO buff would say, well, if they can obviously lie about the transcripts, they can easily take something out. So I, that, that doesn't strike me as being, you know, hugely convincing. We only had authority to use it for a minute or so at most anyway. The transcripts would eventually come out completely uncensored. White says... Occasionally, we would configure for private medical or family conversations. There was no special frequency or code. We'd just have the rest of the consoles get disconnected at the communications centre. 
that's interesting because the the mythical version of the story constantly references the the mythical quote medical channel whereas like here it, it's interesting they did have a way of you know transferring information privately but it wasn't a separate channel they just had to switch switch it off from the public uh, version of it redmond says the medical conversations were not recorded and were not released although we would summarize them in press conferences there's something in the hippocratic oath about a doctor having to maintain confidentiality with with his patients so that's probably not just an ethical thing but probably a legal one as well Redmond says, or the, the questioner, Oberg, says, how often did this happen? And Redmond says, during Apollo, quite infrequently. During Skylab, we'd have to have such a talk maybe every three days or so. Oberg says, so there was no special code or secret channel. Redmond says, no, we used our ordinary channels, but the crew would request the doctor only, the flight surgeon, and the rest of us would disconnect. Or else the crew could talk privately to their families in a back room down the hall from the control room. Um, and Oberg says, outside of these confidential talks with doctors, wives and children, were there any other conversations not publicly available? Redmond says, no, I don't think so. I don't see how they could have managed it. And that is all the information I was able to get about the so-called Pepper transcript. I wonder if anyone listening has come across this story themselves. Is it better known than I think it is? Um, does it appear in well-known UFO books of any kind or books on the strange? Or have you seen uh, any really, really good illustrations of it? Or have you heard any kind of extensions of this? Has the myth grown and mutated and turned into something different after this time period in the early 80s when Oberg is writing about it? Being as he is kind of my main source for where this story came from. Certainly... Other elements were added to the sort of NASA, you know, faking everything mythology over the years, not even touching the, the moon landing hoax, but just talking about like secret space programs. And that has gone off into strange places at the moment. Like I said earlier, there's loads of articles about supposedly questionable NASA photographs from both the moon and Mars featuring stuff that supposedly shows either aliens or alien structures or, you know, secret NASA bases. Unfortunately, almost all of them come from terrible, terrible tabloid websites that, you know, have more ads on them than actual text or photographs. And I I don't tend to spend a lot of time on them because they're annoying to read and they tend not to, you know, they tend not to have any interesting stories attached to the photographs. And I don't really like to support bad journalism anyway, if I can avoid it. But if you have anything connected to this you'd like me to know about, please do get in touch. As always, over on Twitter, we are at Strange Ireland. On Instagram, we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed this episode. So, as always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.